0: Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our Studying the Word of God this evening. Let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can uh, make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, that if there's any sin that you need to confess to the Lord, that you can take this time in silent prayer to do so, to make sure that you are recovered from a lapse in walking by the Spirit. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful we had this time to come together to focus upon you, to be reminded of your grace, that you, your work toward us in preserving us and protecting us and above all in saving us is not based in any way, shape, or form or what we do or what we don't do. It's based exclusively on Jesus' work on the cross, that he paid the penalty in full for our sin, for all sin. No sin was left unpaid for, and the issue, therefore, is not uh, what can we do to help save ourselves, but should we trust in Jesus? The issue is always the cross, faith alone in Christ alone. Challenge us with the truth of that, and what it means is the fact that we have new life in Him, and we're new creatures in Christ Jesus with a new mission, a new purpose, a new destiny in our lives. Fathers, we Study this evening, help us to understand the things that we study and the implications and application for our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I thought I would start off with just a couple of little pictures uh, from last week. This is, for those of you who haven't seen it, we have a, I can't remember what it is, pen and ink, I think, out here in the foyer of Preston City Bible Church. And there's also a color photograph back in my office. This is Preston City Bible Church. This church was built in 1815. The church itself is a body kind of started out of a group of what? Well, the, the building was 1815. The church started in 1812, and that's why they chose... It was the other way around? That's not what they said on the thing. That's why they chose October of 2015 is the 200th. That's when when it went independent. Okay. That's when it went independent. Okay, I stand corrected. So the building was put up in 1812, and what they did, and I think I've got this right, is the building originally was built 90 degrees different from where it sits today, and they jacked it up and rotated it 90 degrees in the 1830s. Is that right? Something like that, so that 's just remarkable, and that, that 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 and they really cleaned it up well and and uh, did a lot of work on it there 's a picture of the of the interior, whole everything freshly painted, and the floors stripped and varnished and uh, they just did a tremendous tremendous job and then here 's a picture of just a few of the people that were there towards the end Sunday afternoon. a number of people had already left. And uh, the largest crowd that church has seen since probably the late uh, 19, uh, late 1800s was um, when Marguerite Tongren passed away. Her husband, Dave, was the 99-year-old gentleman that played the harmonica. Marguerite died around 2000, and there were 200 people. That's the most the upstairs and balcony can hold. And I think Sunday morning I counted a little over 120 uh, in there on, on on Sunday morning, but these were the ones um, that that remained. They also had a, tr- uh, a large number of documents. This is part of the founding, uh, fa- what they call that, Bryce subscription, subscription. the founding subscription, uh, the very beginning of the, of the of the church, and then a lot of the people in the church. And here, that's Mike Regal, who's the chairman of the deacons there at Presbyterian Bible Church and is the new executive director for Chafer Seminary. And uh, he's a retired Navy captain. Jim Sexton, who runs all their uh, media and everything, and Pastor David Roslin, wife Krista, and Diane Kovchuk. And I'm not sure who this young lady is, but uh, they had quite, quite a group there. So it... Hmm? Oh, she's playing Holly, role-playing Holly Tyler, the one who was baptized there. They had the strength of their convictions and got baptized on March the 3rd of 1811. They cut through 18 inches of uh, of ice. And I'm not sure which one of those three was Marguerite Congren's direct ancestor, but Marguerite told me that she wore 12 petticoats when they immersed her in that uh, cold water and I've always thought she must have tripled her weight coming out of there unless that uh, Polly Tyler was was her ancestor because she, then she'd been young and she'd have been a little thing but um, anyway it was a tremendous conference and it was all wrapped around the idea of I, the identity of Preston City Bible Church and, and that started as Preston City Baptist Church and why was it a Baptist church what made it a Baptist church and why did they change to being a Bible church, and what is significant about that? How many of y'all got a chance to watch some are part of it? Some, some of y'all, quite a few of y'all did. And it was really helpful to understand that history because that's the history of this church is in many ways a microcosm of the history of Christianity in, in the United States. And so it's really interesting. But a lot of people come come to especially one of what we call teaching or doctrinal Bible churches, and say, why, why, why do you all do things differently? And that's because we put our emphasis on the Word of God and the need to know the Word of God, teaching uh, line by line, precept upon precept, uh, verse by verse, and going through the Scriptures so people understand the whole of the Word of God and therefore know not only what they believe, but why they believe it. And so we went through different issues related to the importance of understanding grace in the gospel, uh, understanding dispensations and dispensationalism, understanding uh, grace in the spiritual life. Dan Ingram did a good job with two sessions of sanctification. And then uh, Ron McMurray, who was the pastor who preceded me, who was there the longest of any pastor, he was there 22 years, uh, taught also a little bit about, about the spiritual life and then um, I can't remember what everybody else talked about, but it was it was really an excellent. And I encourage a lot of people to listen to that because it does give you a a good overview of who we are and how Bible churches like us came came into existence. All right, well, let's turn our Bibles to First Samuel chapter seven. First Samuel chapter seven. And just a reminder, last time, as we were looking at the events in First Samuel chapter seven, we were also looking at uh, things over in second uh, Corinthians in second Corinthians chapter six, talking about the issue of or chapter seven, the issue related to the terminology of uh, uh, that's usually translated godly sorrow. But above all, talking about the issue of what is the role of of emotion, if anything, in terms of remorse and sorrow for sin in relation to recovery from rebellion against God. And this is really the backdrop for what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 7. There's a lot of misunderstanding and distortion about emotion in terms of recovery in the Christian life. So just by way of review, the outline in these first seven chapters, see we're coming to the end of that first section, it's where Yahweh is preparing to deliver Israel through a great change. And there has to be a preparation. Now this is interesting. Again and again we see this pattern with Israel, is that before God brings a grace change to the nation and there's a recovery, He brings them to a point where they're going to realize the flaws and failures in their spiritual life and how they have have uh, rejected Him. And they have to understand what it is that they have done wrong. And there's a principle there, and it's the same principle that applies in terms of confession of sin. Confession of sin is an admission that we have disobeyed God it's a recognition it may or may not involve as i pointed out last time emotion because sometimes we have very familiar sins or whatever it may be it may be a mental attitude sin of anger or resentment or bitterness and and these sins have become very much a part of our lives and so uh they may have been uh, it may have been a problem that caused us great angst when we were adolescents but after 30 or 40 years of realizing that we still have that same sin trend, uh, we don't quite get as worked up emotionally about it. And I think, and the problem is, some people think that you have to. And these, these uh, that was what we were pointing out last time. So uh, in this section, we see how God has orchestrated the collapse of the old order under Eli. And then in chapters 5 through 1, he's, he's bringing Israel to a point where they are ready to turn back to him. And so the turning back to him takes place in this particular chapter. Now, as I looked at it last time, I just want to read in uh, in chapter 7, verse 3. Then Samuel spoke, uh, let me look at verse 2. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented, after the Lord. And what had happened uh, at the end of verse 19, look at 619. After the men from Beth Shemesh violated the Torah and the instructions on how to handle the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, because this is holy, it's the presence of God, this is the throne of God, he's enthroned above the cherubim, they get all curious and they're going to take the Mercy seat off the top of the ark, they want to look inside, they want to ha- basically they want to put their hands all over God instead of treating God with respect, and so God struck fifty thousand and seventy of the people and the last line though is what I want you to pay attention to, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter i won 't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you all have ever been sorry you got caught? Are sorry you had to pay the penalty. I think that's that's true for most of us. And see, that's what happening with what's happening with Israel at the end of chapter six. Is they're sorry they got punished, but they haven't turned back to God yet. And that's what we saw in in Second Corinthians seven was usually translated remorse was the Greek word metamelami. It's just emotion that doesn't produce change. And Paul told the the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians that he was glad that he made them sorry, but it was a sorrow, not godly sorrow, that's a bad translation from the Greek, but a sorrow according to God or according to God's standards. That Greek preposition that is used there means uh, according to a standard, kata, and it means according to a standard. so they recognize that they have disobeyed God and failed God, and it, they, while they do have emotion, they do have remorse, it was, on a, it was only one stage toward the end game of change. And change is the meaning of the word metanoeo, which means to change your mind. It's usually translated repent, but even in the English language, the word repent is often defined as remorse, it means to change your mind, change the direction of your life, and that's what we're seeing here. Now, I put this chart up on the screen last time because it's an overview, a blueprint of the of the Christian life. The Christian who's walking by the Holy Spirit is what is exhibited in this top cycle here. And when a believer is living in rebellion, and disobedience to God that's what's demonstrated in the bottom cycle how does a person go from walking according to the sin nature to walking according to the holy spirit it's through confession of sin i ran through that the last time that we confess sin well a series of passages to go to in john chapter 15 uh, the the necessary condition to produce fruit and to grow is to abide in christ And you can abide or not abide. Galatians 5.16 and following. The sole and necessary condition to produce the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 and 23 is to walk by the Spirit. But you can either walk by the Spirit or not walk by the Spirit. So if you put those two passages together, then what we learn from that is that abiding, if abiding in Christ is a sole and necessary condition for producing fruit, Growing and maturing, and walking by the Spirit is the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit. Then, walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ correlate to one another; they're roughly synonymous, two sides of the same coin. Then, if you take Galatians five sixteen and following, and you compare the language there to the language in Ephesians five one and following that talks about walking in truth, walking in the light, walking in the love. That's contrasted to walking in darkness. So again, you have abide or don't abide, walk in the spirit or walk according to darkness, walk in darkness or walk in the light in First John, walk as a fool or walk as wise in Ephesians 5, and what is characteristic of the person who's walking in love, walking in the light, walking in truth, is that they are being filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, English translations usually muck that up a little bit because in English, when you look at that kind of construction in the Greek with the the Greek preposition in, you can translate it filled with the spirit, filled by the spirit, or even filled in the spirit. But filled, but filled by the Spirit fits best, and that shows that the Spirit is filling us with something. We're not getting more of the Spirit because God the Holy Spirit indwelled every believer completely, totally, fully. Uh, from the instant they tr- you trust Christ as Savior, God the Holy Spirit is in each one of us, and he's leading us, according to Galat- uh, Romans chapter 8. But if we don't walk according to the Spirit, as Romans 8 says, but if we walk according to the flesh, then we're not going to produce. We're going to be down here in this lower cycle. We'll go through various tests in life, but instead of applying the Word, we're going to try to handle it on our own, which is going to yield to sin and morality, what, I, what we call just human good. It's not good that's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's just good that's produced like any any unbeliever, and it leads to temporal death. That is a death-like existence. We're living like a spiritually dead person. This leads to spiritual weakness and instability, which unfortunately characterizes a lot of Christians and a lot of us at different times. When we're not walking with the Lord, we're spiritually unstable, and we make what the writer of Proverbs calls foolish decisions. If we continue long enough in this cycle, we will regress spiritually, we'll lose ground in terms of our spiritual growth, our heart can be hardened against God, and we just spiral out of control spiritually. But if we confess our sin and add to that a change of mind, genuine repentance, which we'll talk about in a minute, then as we walk by the Spirit It produces a richness and abundant life that Jesus promised us. Our life becomes an evidence for the truth of God's word. We produce divine good that is the fruit of the spirit, character change. It leads to greater endurance, just like an athlete. The more you work out, the more you develop your stamina, the more you develop your endurance, and the stronger you become. And this leads eventually to spiritual maturity. So the goal is for the Christian life in the church age to walk by the Spirit. Of course, we're looking at an Old Testament passage. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They just just walked in obedience or in disobedience. It's a different dispensation. They're not indwelt by the Spirit. They're not filled with the Spirit. They don't have the baptism of the Spirit. It's a different dynamic under the Mosaic Law. But there are certain principles that apply and that we can use for illustrative principles. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.3, which is where I started uh, last week, and that in that section of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 where Paul says that these things that happened in the Old Testament were an example, were an example to us. And so what happens is, 20 years after the ark returns to Kiriath-Jerim, 20 years after they lamented because God punished them, now they're lamenting uh, after the Lord. It took 20 years for them to say, okay, Lord, we're tired of the discipline, we're tired of the punishment, we're tired of going through this, we want to turn back to you, we want to trust you. Some people are called stiff-necked, and the Israelites were called stiff-necked by God many times, many times in the Scripture because they refused to respond to respond. So the point that I was making with the New Testament illustration I went to last week is that we need to understand the difference between just being emotional and having remorse, which doesn't take us anywhere. And a lot of people just think that it's all about emotion. The emotion doesn't impress God. Sometimes it impresses us, but it doesn't impress God because God and his omniscience know how many more times we're going to sin and commit that same sin that we're telling him will never, ever, ever commit that sin again. We just don't want to get spanked for it. And then God in his omniscience says, well, I know you're going to commit that sin 25,732 more times, so quit trying to pull the wool over my eyes by your crocodile tears. Just admit and acknowledge what you did was wrong. And that's all it is. It's just like when you're in a court of law, and I always use the example of when I first went to Connecticut and spent quite a bit of time going to visit the local magistrate because I would get these little citations for going too fast. Streets in Connecticut had speed limits, or the, the country roads had speed limits that were roughly 15 to 20 miles slower than here. And so you're driving down a road, and you think you ought to be doing 45 and the speed limit's 30, and you're in trouble. So that was until a, a police officer told me one day, said, Oh, I don't want to give tickets to pastors. Just go into court, sign your name as Reverend Dean, and the judge will take care of you. And which I did. I had to still pay the fine, but I had to give a donation to a, uh, to, to a, a charity. And it didn't go on my record. But after that, I taped my business card to the back of the driver's license but I never had to learn that lesson again. So anyway, we we don't like to get caught, and we don't like to pay the fine. We don't like to to change, but I couldn't work up any emotion and go on there, oh, I'm so sorry, I sped. I'll never do it again. I could never do that. That would be a bold-faced lie. Those of you who know me know me too well. So emotion isn't what the judge in the courtroom is looking for. He's looking for an admission of guilt or a statement of innocence, and that's what God's looking for in His justice. Fess up, meaning admit it or not. Now, so now the Israel is turning to God, and this is what God wants. Brings us to the point He brings us to in when we're in carnality, when we're in disobedience. Now, let's see what happens next. Samuel then gives him further instruction. He says. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts. Now, that's the starting point. It involves confession, but it doesn't end with confession. I think a lot of people got the idea that all I need to do is just keep confessing my sin. But the point in Scripture isn't confession. That's just recovery. The point in the New Testament is to stay in fellowship to abide in Christ, to continue to walk by the Spirit. And when we're young, it's going to be like a revolving door because just like any any human in the physical life, any newborn babe, uh, you, you're, you're learning to what it means to become obedient. But the time should come when you realize, I'm really tired of getting uh, my, my butt whacked. I need to stay in fellowship a little bit longer and walk with the Lord because that's where the real action is. That's where real life is. And that's the exhibiting of our turning to the Lord. It starts with a mental attitude. And this is, in the Hebrew, this is the word shuv. And this is an important word even in uh, modern Hebrew. You, you, if a person becomes religious, it's called teshuvah from shuv, that's the middle, it has a T prefix on it, but it's the same word. It's turning to the Lord. So Samuel says, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, and this word turn shows up a lot of different places, like in Deuteronomy 4.30, God told Israel before they went in, um, this is Moses speaking, before they went into the land, he says, when you're in distress, in other words, when I'm bringing judgment upon you, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, that's the latter days of Israel when they're scattered among the nations, when you turn to the Lord. What's the solution? It's turning to the Lord away from idols. And anybody who is not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, is worshiping an idol. That idol may be Allah. That idol may be the father God of Mormonism. That idol may be your career. That idol may be your pleasures. That idol may be drugs. That idol may be pornography. That idol may be uh, your own personal pleasure and entertainment. There are a lot of different idols that we can establish that take us away from the Lord. So God says, when you turn to the Lord, and again and again what we see connected is turning isn't just a matter, it doesn't end with confession. It's supposed to move, the normal move, as expressed in Scripture, is to obey. Again and again you see this connection throughout all of Scripture, turn and obey, turn and obey. Deuteronomy 4.39, therefore know this day. Oh, that had to do with something else. Turning here has to do with turning thoughts over in your head. I pointed that out last time. Deuteronomy 31 through 3 talks about the end times, the last days of Israel. And in verse 2, it talks about after all these things, these disciplines listed in Deuteronomy 28 have come upon you, and you're scattered throughout all the nations of the earth, then when you recall these things to mind here at the end of verse 1, when you recall these things to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey your, his voice. Notice again, it's turn and obey. It's, not, it's turning and obeying. What we're going to see in other passages later on, it's turning to God and getting rid of the idols. It's removing those idols out of our life. And that's the result of applying the word to those situations. It's not just... Confessing and continuing to do the same things. It's confessing and turning, putting aside those things. And the promise of God in verse 3 is the Lord God will bring you back from captivity. That hasn't happened yet. This is a turn that is a spiritual turn to God. Now there's a return of Israel prophetically that's a return in unbelief. And I believe that's what we're seeing now. It started with the first Aliyah in, in the 1890s And it's continuing, and almost 50% of worldwide Jews now live in the land of Israel. Isaiah 11.11 says that there are going to be two worldwide returns. The second one is in belief. The first one is in unbelief. And there's never been a worldwide return until you get to the end of the 19th century. And now we have a worldwide return. You see the same word, Jeremiah 3.22, return, you backslidden children. Uh, in Jeremiah 4, 1, "'Return to me,' the Lord says." Jeremiah 18.8, "'If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil.'" Notice, it's turning, it's rejecting the wrong path and turning to the right path. So this is what happens when the house of Israel lamented unto the Lord, then the Lord said, "'If you return,' and then Samuel spells out the rest of the process.'" That it doesn't just start with turning, which is comparable to repentance, but it is a, a turn that results in action, in certain specific course uh, course of action that comes that comes across. And so here he says, this first step is to turn to God. That is a mental attitude shift where we turn away from sin and we turn toward God. And then what happens is that there are some subsequent things that take place. If you turn to the Lord, then put away the foreign gods. Don't just confess sin and then just keep right on doing it. The goal is, in the normal Christian life, is to, is to confess sin and then beginning to take action to avoid that sin, to avoid, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, all appearance of evil. If you turn to the Lord with all your hearts, then, first step, put away the foreign gods and the asterisks among you. Get rid of the idols in your life. Second, prepare your hearts for the Lord. This, again, is mental attitude. Heart doesn't refer to emotion, uh, except for maybe uh, of three percent of its uses in the Old Testament. It it relates to the mind, the center of the soul, the thinking of the soul. Scripture says a man thinketh, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So we, it's the thinking part of the soul. And serve him only. So you have these steps here, three steps. First you turn, followed by three steps, put away, prepare, and serve. And then there's a result. Then he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now, this isn't talking about individual spiritual life of people in the nation. This is talking about the corporate spiritual life of the nation. And this terminology comes right out of the Old Testament. It is a recognition that there's more to the spiritual life of their nation as they walk with the Lord in terms of the Mosaic Covenant than simply ritual they have to change their mental attitude so that they're not focused on the idols of those around them, but they're focused on the Lord. We see an interesting example of this kind of thing still under the Mosaic law in Matthew 5.23. And in Matthew 5.23 and 24, Jesus is using the example of an individual who's already confessed, okay? So he's already gone through cleansing ritual, and he's coming to the temple to bring an offering. And as he's prepared to bring an offering to the Lord, he is reminded by God somehow. Uh, it's interesting. Sometime if you read through the book of Nehemiah, remember, they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They're not walking by the Spirit of the Old Testament. But Nehemiah would say, and the Lord put it into my mind to do this. Now that's not revelation. That's not God speaking. That's God working in and through your mentality to bring thoughts to your consciousness. Okay? And you and I can't always tell the difference between or where those thoughts come from. The Holy Spirit often takes the word that's stored in our soul and He brings it back to memory. But God doesn't speak to us in this dispensation like He did prior to this dispensation. In this dispensation, the canon is closed. The last person God spoke to, the last person to receive divine revelation was John the Apostle in about approximately 95 or 96 A.D. God hasn't spoken to anybody since. Now, it's really sloppy, sloppy um, language to say, well, God spoke to me and told me to do this. A lot of times all people mean by that is that it basically, God brought something to their attention. The Holy Spirit somehow along the way brought something to their attention in their mind and and they 're responding to it. but they use a very mystical language god isn 't speaking like that today he 's not giving new revelation. The canon is closed, revelation has ceased. The test today is are we willing to trust the Word of God in its sufficiency? To live on its basis. So do we have to have God reaffirming it all over again? Or are we willing to trust what it is? Remember, a classic example of this is in, is in Luke 16 when, uh, Jesus tells the story about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man, uh, Lazarus was a beggar outside the gate of the rich man. The rich man died and he went, he was not a believer. He went to the place of torments in, uh, Hades. Lazarus was a believer. Lazarus goes to where all Old Testament saints would in the Old Testament. He went to a place called paradise. He doesn't go to heaven yet because sin hasn't been paid for yet. So he goes to paradise and there's this conversation that takes place because the rich man is over there in torments and he says it's just, he's burning up, he's dying of thirst, he, he, there's a, a, a gulf, water between the two uh, locations. And he can see Father Abraham on the side of paradise and he says, Father Abraham, just, just let Lazarus dip his finger in the water and put that on my tongue. So that indicates some kind of interim body before we get our resurrection body. And, uh, and then he said, I said, I don't want my brothers to go through this. Let Lazarus return from the dead. Now this isn't the Lazarus who's the brother of Mary and Martha. He says, let Lazarus return from the dead. And tell my brothers, warn my brothers about this, so they won't make this mistake. And Abraham gives one of the most insightful statements. And and today we hear all these all these things come up. There was just a I saw an interview the other day with some pastor from Austin, who um, who wrote a book about these near death experiences and people who believe they died and they saw Jesus and went to heaven. That's not that's not biblical. There's a lot of reasons for that, but. This applies to that. Abraham said, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe somebody who came back from the dead. And see, that's what happened later with Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. It's happened with the the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue, what God is saying is you don't need to have miracles. You don't need to have some kind of new Revelation or stimulation or something from God to validate his word, if you won't re- won 't believe the self authenticating um, the self authenticating word of God, then you won 't believe somebody 's experience because the authority and the complete authority is located in the Word of God and that 's the test for today. Are we willing to trust the Word of God in its sufficiency and in its totality? Are we looking for some kind of additional experience to validate it? But the issue that Abraham says in that story is that if the Moses and the prophets isn't enough, there's no additional miracle or experience that then will, that will uh, validate that. So the issue is that we're to turn to God, and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew five twenty three is then if you have gone through the cleansing ritual in the Old Testament. You're pure. You go into the, the um, uh, te- temple, and you bring your gift to the altar, and then you remember that there's a sin against a brother. Now, you're, you're in a position where you're in fellowship, and at this point, God has brought something to your mind. You're to leave your gift there and leave the altar and go your way because the law said to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you continue once God has brought this sin to mind and you don't deal with it, then you're out of fellowship again. And so Jesus says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and bring your gift. It's totally structured within the the offerings framework of of the temple. But this is the kind of thing that we see many times in the Old Testament is that, that when we are going to obey God, there's confession, and then there is consequent action that is expected. For example, in uh, G- G- Genesis thirty-five twenty-two, Jacob said to his household, to all who were with him. This is when J- Jacob is going back to the land, and he's going to uh, uh, enter into the land, and they're going to offer a sacrifice to God. He says, "Put away the foreign gods that are among you." Okay. Get rid of this, remove the sin, cleanse yourselves, change your garments. Preparation for worship. Other passages that talk about uh, this, let the wicked forsake his way and unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. There's a correlation between not just confession, turning to God means removing other things from the life. Jeremiah 25, 5 and 6, repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings. That means to turn from it and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. What does it mean to to repent from those things? Verse 6, do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands and I will not harm you same kind of thing that Joshua said in Joshua 24:20 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods then he will do you harm and he will consume you after he has done you good so what happens again we see this is the same pattern over and over again in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 4 so the children of Israel put away the baals and the asherahs and served the Lord only. So they are. They they first they did what they lamented. God brought them to a point of sorrow according to God. They turned to God, and then they do what uh, they asked Samuel what they should do, and he says to put away these gods. So they do that. First uh, Samuel four. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs and served the Lord only. Now, what happens here is something that happens a lot of times in in Israel. It happens with us individually. Anytime that we start becoming serious about our spiritual life, there's going to be some opposition. Satan just loves to throw up some opposition in our direction. The world system seems to cooperate with that. and Sometimes our sin nature is just all too ready to try to block any attempts that we have to start walking with the Lord. And so we always have to be prepared for that. And so this is what happens. Israel, uh, puts away the Baals and the Asherahs to serve the Lord only. And then they ask, uh, Samuel, well, what do we do? And he says, gather at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. But what happens while they're gathering at Mizpah is the Philistines get word of this. Now what happens spiritually as the Philistines are their overlord at this time, when Israel says, we're, we're turning back to God, they are rejecting the gods of the Philistines. That's called treason. They are, in, by taking a stand against these false gods they've been worshiping they, and turning to God, they are committing an act of rebellion. It starts theologically, starts religiously. They're committing an act of rebellion against, uh, against the Philistines. And so the Philistines start to gather their armies together, and they are going to come against the uh, Israelites at Mizpah, and something really interesting happens here says so they gathered together at Mipah now i 'm going to go to this slide here 's misspa it's located about uh, twenty miles north and a little west of Jerusalem and this it, there's no uh, central sanctuary there it has a history in the background of of Israel as a place where they met and they confirmed uh, the, they confirmed the co- covenant and they are going to meet, uh, they're going to meet together there. Now what happens is they come together, they poured out the, wa- and, and they drew this water and they poured it out before the Lord. Now what in the world is going on here? Because there's no ritual that, that calls for this in the Mosaic Law. And so this symbolizes something. And we ought to ask the question, what is it that water symbolizes in the scripture? Water symbolizes cleansing, and it also symbolizes life. And so there is a recognition here that they are uh, that they're cleansed and also recognition that there's life. In, in, in Eden, uh, water was a symbol of life, and in Revelation chapter 21, we see water flowing out of the throne of God, and it is used there also as a symbol of, of eternal life. It's used in Lamentations 2:19, where Jeremiah says, "Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord." So it was in need of Israel to confess, or Judah to confess sin before the Lord, as they're getting ready to go out under the fifth cycle of discipline by Nebuchadnezzar conquering them. But well, one of the most interesting and significant events, I think, and it may have its origin in this event, because this act of pouring out water before the Lord at Mizpah became part of the ritual of Israel, and we have a feast where Jesus is in uh, in Jerusalem. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, and on the last day, Jesus comes out, and he makes an announcement to the crowd, and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, as they're pouring out the water, he's identifying with that, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I'm the source of life. Drinking, we do that in communion service. We drink the cup. That's a picture of belief, of taking something in. So when Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, he's saying basically to come and believe upon him, which is what is spelled out in the next verse, he who believes in me. See, believing in him is parallel to drinking the water. Just as in communion, the reason we eat the bread and drink the cup, those symbolize the fact that we have Uh, We have trusted in Christ. We have believed in him, uh, his person, and his work for our salvation. So in verse 38, Jesus goes on to say what he means by this, is he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water because it's a cleansed heart because of confession. So uh, this pouring out of the water is a depiction of cleansing of sin, and the new life that comes. See, when the believer is walking in darkness, walking in sin, it's a life of of death. That's how Paul describes it in in Romans chapter 6. You're living like a dead person. It's not spiritual death. It's not eternal death. It is what we call carnal or temporal death. It's living like you're spiritually dead instead of experiencing the abundant fullness uh, of, of Christ's life. Now, First Samuel seven seven, First Samuel seven seven, we read. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So, the previous two verses or three verses are telling us what Israel's doing, and then as as the uh, Philistine spies. As their intelligence network reported back to them and they heard that Israel was gathering together at Mizpah, they decided to respond and put down this rebellion. And so they went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They looked at the circumstances like many of us do and they became fearful. They, they, they looked out on the employment situation in Houston and they weren't too happy, especially if they were in the oil business, and they became fearful. They looked at the things that were going on in, in their school or with their children, and they became fearful. They looked at the fact that their children are just being overwhelmed with a lot of uh, human viewpoint, idiocy and lies and political correctness in the school, and they became fearful. There are a lot of reasons people become fearful. Some people just manufacture fear because that's the trend of their sin nature. So Israelites had a circumstance that they couldn't resolve on their own, and they became fearful. So they cried out to the Lord, and they called upon Samuel to cry out for them in verse 8. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, don't cease to cry out to our Lord "...to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines." Notice this is another use of the word save that doesn't refer to eternal salvation. It refers to a temporal deliverance from a temporal problem. So they're crying out, and this is the same kind of thing that we saw happen again and again in the book of Judges, where they're about to be uh, attacked by an enemy force, and they cry out to the Lord. They're calling upon him to sustain them. In, in the midst of the difficulty. And so they cry out to Samuel, and Samuel does what? Samuel is going to show this is how you trust the Lord. What does he do? He takes a suckling lamb. That means this is a lamb who has not been weaned yet. And it's a lamb that, in fitting with all the descriptions in Scripture, would be a lamb that was a spot or blemish. And he takes that suckling lamb, and he offers it, as an ola, as a whole burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering represents both, uh, rep- represents both a positional sanctification, positional sanctification, and experiential sanctification. The offering itself is designed to teach about what it's necessary to come into positional fellowship or recovery of fellowship with God. In a burnt offering, all of the animal is burned up everything is immolated upon the fire this is the same offering that's offered every morning and every evening in the in the temple as part of the as part of the regular feast and what happens is this 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 baby lamb is taken and if you've ever seen that go to the go to the stock show sometime and just look at some baby lamb and think about having to take that lamb when you sinned and having to bring that to a priest. And while you're standing there, the priest is going to have you put your hand on that lamb and confess your sin. And and in doing that, your sin is being transferred to that lamb and that lamb is now going to bear the punishment of your sin And because of what you did that lamb is going to die. I don't know why I lost my signal. There it is. That lamb is going to die. And that's what happened at the cross. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he had to die because of our sin. And so the burnt offering, this, this lamb has his throat cut, and then he is placed upon the, uh, the altar and the fire is lit, and it is completely consumed. It is a picture of substitutionary atonement, that something has to die in our place for our sin. And it is a picture of the fact that that it is because of a sacrifice that we either gain fellowship with God to begin with in salvation, or experientially we are restored to fellowship because of that. Now, what happens next, we read, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. This is phenomenal. They're not armed with anything more than than bronze weapons. The, The Philistines have iron weapons, but the Israelites don't. So they're outgunned, they're outmanned. The Philistines have greater tacticians, they're, they're greater military, and how in the world are we going to do this? And this is another example that the battle is the Lord's. Whatever the battle is in your life, the battle is always the Lord's. And so they draw up, and then it says the Lord thundered with a loud, with a loud thunder. Now this is fascinating because the word that is used here isn't the normal word for thunder. This word is used only when God is speaking from heaven. This word is used to describe the thunderous supernatural sound of God speaking into his creation. You have passages like this this passage, and then it goes back in context to to Hannah's psalm in 1 Samuel 2.10, where she predicts, she says, "...the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them." So again, God is the one doing this kind of thunder. Some other passages, Second Samuel 22, 14, "...the Lord thundered from his heaven," the psalm says, "...and the Most High uttered his voice." Uttering his voice is parallel to thundering. It is the voice of God speaking into his creation. Psalm 18.13, the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. This is God bringing judgment on an enemy. Psalm nine three: the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of the glory thunders. This is re- probably relating to the uh, Noahic flood. Psalm 96.11, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the sea roar and all its fullness in those who dwell in it. The roaring is this, this thunder as a result of God's God's work. Job 37.4, after it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. So all of this is God speaking in the this is the same thing I think that happens. Different word, but when Jesus is about to be laid, the the, the Roman guard is about to lay hands on him when they're arresting him at Gethsemane. And remember, there's this this flash and this loud sound, and the the Roman soldiers fall down on their faces before Jesus. I think this is that same thing. It. It doesn't scare the heck out of you. It scares a whole lot more out of you. The Philistines just immediately blanched and ran. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as Beth car. This is a continuation of, of holy war that God instituted, which was temporary. There's no continuation of it. It only occurred during a limited time as God was authorizing Israel to bring divine judgment on the Canaanites. It has nothing to do with jihad today. Jihad is a per- satanic perversion of what God was doing to clear the ab- and clean out, surgically remove the abomination of the Canaanites. And the land that they recover is land that had previous been, previously been lost. So because of their obedience, they're going to have a supernatural victory over the Philistines, and they're going to recover land that they had lost. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenatzer. Now, there's a song, a hymn we sing, um, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the second verse, it says, here I place mine Ebenezer. And most people are going, what does this have to do with Scrooge? What does this have to do with, I don't understand. And Ebenezer is a Hebrew word for the stone of help. That God is our rock of help. He is the one who helped us. Now, there's another Ebenezer that's mentioned, probably a different location, that was at the Battle of Aphek, which we studied back at the beginning of 1 Samuel uh, 4, that the Israelites gathered at, at Ebenezer, and the Philistines gathered at Aphek, and at that Ebenezer, God did not help them because he was taking them under divine discipline. But at this Ebenezer, God is giving them the victory because they have returned to him in obedience. And so God gives them victory, and that's what the meaning of this. The Lord has helped us. But it literally means he's the rock of our help. Now, that second word, azer, listen to this. That second word, azer is what Adam says when he sees Eve. He says, Lord, you've given me an azer. You've given me an assistant. Only God and the wife are called an assistant. Now, uh, feminists today think that that is derogatory to call a wife the assistant to the man. But if it's derogatory to call the wife an Atser, then it would be derogatory to call God an Atser. And if it's derogatory to call God an azer, that's blasphemy. So to say that it's derogatory to call a woman an Atser is an attack and an assault on the very character of God who is our Atser. He's the one who sustains us and he is our helper. He is the one who helps us. Why? Because he's our rock. And we see this term, Evan, used again and again in relationship to God. Here's a couple, several verses. Deuteronomy 32.4 says just he's the rock. It's almost as if rock is a nickname for God. And that's what I think Jesus is referring to when he's talking to Peter and has that interchange and he says on this rock, he's referring to himself, I will build my church. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteousness, righteous and upright is he. In verse 15, but Yeshurun, that's another term for Israel. They grew fat and kicked. That is, they got uh, prosperity and they forgot God. You grew fat, you grew thick, you're obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Deuteronomy 32:30. 30. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? So it's the rock who gives them the ability to have military victory. In First uh, Samuel 22:3, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield, and the, this should be Second Samuel 22:3. Uh, my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold my refuge but see god is our rock second samuel 22:32 for who is god except the lord and who is a rock except our god and as well as in second samuel 22:47 so the issue is that in whatever situation you're in when you're like the, Philist- the the israelites and you're surrounded by the philistines the only hope is god's our rock and even when you're not surrounded by the Philistines and it's just petty problems, we're, we're, we have the rock to sustain us. God is the one who protects us. He's, scripture uses all these metaphors. He's our stronghold. He's our fortress. He's our rock. He's our defense. He is a cleft in the rock. He is the one who protects us, and he is the one who sustains us. And he wants us to trust him fully and trust him alone and not try to say, Lord, I'm really trusting you for things, but I got enough money in the bank and my 401k is okay and we're trusting in all these other things. God wants that exclusive trust on him. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that, that the battle is yours. The battle belongs to you. You are the one who wants to give us victory. But the conditions are that we need to be walking with you. We need to trust in you. We need to be walking by God the Holy Spirit in fellowship, and we need to be applying your word. Those are the conditions. Then you deliver us. Then you sustain us through each and every problem, no matter how overwhelming it may be. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these promises and these principles we've studied this evening. In Christ's name, Amen.